Well, I hope by now, if uh, someone were to ask you, what's the letter of 1 John about? You'll be able to say, well, two very important things. The truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and what uh, God the Father has accomplished through him to save us. And the fruit of believing that Gospel, which is love. Love for one another and love for our neighbour. In 4 verse 7 we were told last week, maybe it was the week before, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We saw that the kind of love that John is speaking of here is defined by who God is as love and is displayed clearly in the sending of the Son by the Father to be the Saviour of the world. And the extent of this love is seen in his self-giving sacrifice at the cross. So if we know this full love of the Father for us and we're enabled to begin living in this same kind of love towards others, there's an unbreakable link between love and the historical action of God in the world, in Jesus the Son. And so in 5 verse 1 we see a a similar statement to this one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. See that link? Everyone who loves is born of God. Everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God. We can never know or live in the full love of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how John is making a point, as he has been through his whole letter, but also here, a point of using relational family language. The Christian faith is neither just simply intellectual belief in a set of ideas, nor is it simply obedience to a set of guidelines or a way of living. That's those two together can make for a very, very impressive religious looking life and on the surface can appear to be very genuine. Yes, I believe in something, I'm convinced of something and I live in a certain way. However, it's only a two dimensional view and in the end it can turn out to be just that, a two dimensional, a, a thin facade that veils a heart that's actually quite distant from God. It needs a third dimension, the dimension of a real living relationship, an intimacy with God, where we know and rest on him as children of the Father. And that relationship takes faith from just being belief in an idea or a truth or a fact to actually trust Trust in the person of Jesus. And it transforms obedience from just doing the right thing or following a set of rules to a, a heartfelt obedience towards God himself. Authentic life is where these three, all three dimensions are present. The faith, the belief, the trust, the obedience, stepping out in love, in obedience to God's commands. 
but it needs that relational, that intimacy, uh, that love for God himself. Notice how this third relational dimension forms the basis of the other two. Unless that relationship is there, then, as I said, faith and obedience are just a thin facade that veils a heart that's not really uh, in line with the Father. Last week I suggested that half of our problems in life would go away if we were just to live in the full conscious reality of our identity as children of the Father. But this passage this morning directs us to think about the identity of others in the church. If I'm called to think of myself as a child of God, then I must also think of my fellow Christians as children of God. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters, we are family. So if we say we love God, John tells us, then we must also love those who are born of God because we're all of the same family. It's one of Jesus' hardest sayings, isn't it? That we must count our bond with him and with his people as being stronger and more significant than even flesh and blood family. It's the church, it's the family of the Father that will endure into eternity. Even when the bonds of flesh and blood within our families have come to an end, they've passed away, our bonds of marriage, human marriage, will have passed away, they would have all been replaced and superseded by this marriage, the real marriage between the people, the church and Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See how family language here precedes kingdom language. To be born again is to enter into a new family, to receive a new status as a daughter or as a son. And it's this family relationship that gives you automatic entry into the kingdom because this family is the king's family. If you are in the family of the king, then you're in the kingdom. So this is why, John says in verse 3, his commands are not burdensome. When we love one another, we do so as family members. I, as an object of love, the Father's love, simply love another person who is also an object of the Father's love. Love is no longer something that goes against the grain. It should be second to nature, second nature to someone who knows God and loves him. So we've seen that the marks of the new birth, being born again, being born of God, is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ and we love one another. And in verse 4 he tells us there's one more mark or one other benefit of the new birth. He says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now way back in chapter 2 we saw that the world is summed up in all the rebellious desires that run against God and his will. 
Uh, the, John speaks of them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And this is the battle that we face every day as his people. Am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for God and his people? The world with its message of self-fulfilment, self-achievement, self-pride is constantly telling us to live for self. And it's an assault on the commands of God to love him and love our neighbour. Trying to overcome this pressure in our own strength is a futile exercise because not only do we lack the ability, but we also lack the willpower. So how do we find victory in this battle? How do we overcome the world? How do we live in the reality that we have overcome the world and begin living for God and living for others? Well, it's not by an external change. It's an internal change. The, the, the new birth, being born of God, it reconstitutes our heart and our will such that the world no longer has control over us. We're free from its power. We're free to love. Now the word that John uses here, the word faith, where he says this, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, uh, in the Greek it's a noun, not a verb. And in fact, nowhere else in John's letters or even in John's gospel does he use this word faith in this form, this noun form. It's always used in a verb form, the act of believing. That should tell us something. He's making a point here that it's not the action of our faith that overcomes the world, but is the object, the content of our faith. We could just as well translate this phrase, the faith which is ours. In the same sense that Jude wrote that he'd written to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The security that faith gives is not found in how well we believe or how great we are at believing but in how reliable and trustworthy is the one in whom we believe. Faith grows not as we try to hype ourselves up or motivate ourselves to believe, but as we're simply reminded and grow in our knowledge in God himself, as he shows himself to us in the gospel of his son. And as that happens, we, we lose confidence in our ability to be victorious and instead we depend on his victory. Sometime after writing this letter, John was exiled to a prison island for proclaiming the gospel, the island of Patmos. And while he was there, the risen Jesus gave him a series of visions which we now know as the book of Revelation. And in the opening chapters, Jesus speaks to the seven churches to whom the book is addressed. Churches in Asia, probably the same group of churches that John is writing this letter to. After assessing each church, he gives each one a promise. To the one who overcomes, I will give 
And then there's a list in your newsletter, there's a list of all of the things that Jesus promises to the overcomer. Just listen to what he gives to those who share in his victory. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They will not be hurt by the second death. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I will give authority over the nations and they will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father and I will give them the morning star. They will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot their name out of the book of life. I will confess their name before my Father and before his angels. I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall they go out of it and I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now look at that list and tell me if there's anything on that list that you are able to achieve yourself. They're all given by Jesus. They're all things that are firstly true of him and he grants them to us as he brings us in to share in the victory that he has over the world. So, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If you do, you're born of God. In a survey that we took last year at Flinders Uni of what people believe about Jesus, around 33%, so nearly exactly one third, selected the Son of God come as a human being. And this actually lines up with an earlier survey that was done uh, Australia-wide of average Australians. I think that was about 34% said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. However, we know for sure that nowhere near 33% or 34% of Australians are practising Christians. The most common response that people gave when asked what they understood this to mean was something like, not sure, but I went to a church school and that's what I was told by the nuns or the teachers. In other words, they weren't actually telling us what they believed. They were telling us what they thought was the correct answer according to Christianity, but they had no idea what Jesus is the Son of God actually means. We can't tell people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God unless we're sure they understand exactly what that means. It's not enough to believe the phrase but then come up in your head with whatever you feel that it means for you. Truth isn't relative. 
There's not one truth for me and one truth for you. So believing that phrase is useless, even dangerous, unless we know what we are to understand by it. Well, fortunately, John doesn't leave us in the dark about this phrase. He goes on to flesh out the heart of what it means to say and believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the Old Testament law required the testimony of at least two or three witnesses to establish the truth of a claim. That's one reason, not the main reason, but one reason why we have four Gospels in the New Testament. Four witnesses testifying to Jesus, twice as many as the law requires. It's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, cites witnesses to Jesus' resurrection and the fact that he cites and mentions over 500 witnesses to the resurrection is his way of saying that Jesus' resurrection is the most certain event in human history. So that's why John here uh, calls upon witnesses, uh, those who testify to the truth of Jesus. In verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, he had said, We have seen, referring to himself and the other apostles, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. But if someone felt that the testimony of John wasn't adequate, he now cites three more witnesses. Three ways in which God himself, through the Gospel itself, testifies to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. The water, the blood and the Spirit. And they refer to what we could call the great three great actions of God to accomplish the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. The first that he mentions is the water. This is a reference to Jesus' own baptism. When Jesus was baptised in, in the Jordan, he identified himself fully with us. He was immersed in our humanity. It was the sign that the Son of God had been made flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. It was the sign of the incarnation. And at his baptism, the Father himself testified publicly from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this was a double-barrelled statement, this is my beloved Son. It meant that Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that the kings of Israel were called sons of God. They ruled with God's authority and so they reflected something of his nature. And the Messiah was to be the Son of God par excellence in that he superseded all kings that came before him. He would be the only one to establish the kingdom of God forever. But it also meant that Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he is God the Son. What was figurative for the kings is literally true for Jesus. Various false teachings through the centuries, uh, one of which John was combating in his letter, have downplayed either Jesus' divinity, being God the Son, or Jesus' humanity, 
But this term son of God in this context means the divine and the human are perfectly united in the person of Jesus. The second witness he calls upon is the blood. This is clearly a reference to the cross, Jesus' death at the cross, where his blood was shed in payment for our sin. And we saw last week that this is the clearest, the greatest display of true love. The love of God where he gives himself fully for us. The incarnation itself was not enough to save us. The incarnate one needed also to die to redeem us from sin. Now if you know the story, at the cross, at the moment of his death, we hear the testimony of the most unlikely witness, a Roman centurion. This centurion, he would have been there in charge of the crucifixions that were taking place. He would have made sure that the soldiers did it properly and thoroughly. And this centurion stands there in a sense as a representative of the nations, the nations for whom Jesus died. And he stands there as an example of anyone who would look at the cross and wonder what it all means. Truly, this man was the Son of God. So Jesus' ministry had begun with the testimony of God the Father and it reached its climax and its conclusion with the testimony of a human being, one of the sinners for whom Jesus came to die. So the water, Jesus' baptism, his incarnation becoming uh, one of us, the blood, his cross where he Uh, laid down his life to redeem us. The third witness that he calls upon, though, is the Spirit. This refers to the sending of the Holy Spirit by the risen Jesus on the day of Pentecost. The sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, in a way, testified to the truth of the resurrection It's because Jesus was raised in glory and seated at the right hand of the Father that he was then able to pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. So this, in a sense, is the climax of Jesus' work as Messiah. The gift of the Spirit to everyday people. That was the great promise of the Old Testament, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh young and old, male and female. This is the same Holy Spirit who filled and empowered Jesus in every step of his ministry. From the moment of his conception in Mary's womb, which was by the Holy Spirit, to the offering of himself at the cross, it was all done in the Spirit's power. And now this Holy Spirit who has been poured upon us, he takes everything that Jesus accomplished and he makes it a reality in the lives of all who put their faith in him. So this sending of the Spirit is, so to speak, the the capstone on Jesus' work as Messiah. It's the Father's ultimate goal to have a people for himself made in the image of his Son 
who are filled with his Holy Spirit. So in a sense, the first two witnesses, the water and the blood, are means to this end. In the incarnation of Jesus, the image of God is restored to humanity and in the cross and the resurrection, the sinful human beings are purged of their sin and made holy again and both are to pave the way for God dwelling amongst his people by his spirit. So each of these landmarks, landmark events, the incarnation, the cross, the day of Pentecost and everything else between them and everything that flows out of them is the saving action of God and they are, uh, as verse 9 says, the testimony of God which he has borne concerning his son. So I ask you again in light of this, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? The Son of God who has united himself to us in our flesh and bone. The Son of God who has given of himself to take your sin, to reconcile you to the Father. The Son of God who gives the gift of the Holy Spirit so that your dwelling is with God and God, God's dwelling with you is guaranteed. If you do believe, by God's grace, John says that you have the testimony in yourself. I think that means two things. Firstly, you know an assurance that you are truly born of him. You are a child of God. Because this testimony is in you, because Christ himself is in you, then nothing in the world can snatch it away. You have victory, you have overcome the world because Christ is in you. Secondly, it means that the very fact of your believing is testimony to the power of the gospel to save and transform. You are a trophy of the Father's grace. If someone says to you, well, you're a Christian, you believe all this stuff, prove it somehow, really say to them, well, come along on Sunday morning or come along on Friday evening or whenever God's people gathered and there you will see a community of people who believe, who trust, who are living, breathing, walking testimony to the truth of the gospel to the truth of the love of the Father for the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians um, 1, here we are, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has done all this. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He has accomplished his will. Why? 
It's, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see the immense significance of this? Your adoption through Christ into sonship with the Father is the primary means by which God will be glorified for all eternity. In the new creation, just as Jesus will be forever in our flesh, bearing the glorified scars of his crucifixion, so too we will always be a ransomed people. We will always be those who once were slaves to sin, but now are free children of God. Forever we will live by his grace and will always be praising him for his glorious grace. And we will lead every creature in heaven and earth and below the earth in praising God for his glorious grace. This is life, as we see in verses 11 and 12. Jesus said as he prayed, before going to the cross, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the reversal of the curse. It's a reversal of the judgment of Eden when God said, the day you eat of the fruit, you'll surely die. Death was being banished from his presence, cut off from his favour, excluded from his household, living under a curse. But to know the Son is to have life because in him we've returned to the presence of the Father. We're now under his favour. We are included in his family and we're the recipient of every blessing. This is the victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world that we saw earlier. To believe in the Son, we saw, is to overcome the world. And here to have the Son, simply another way of saying to believe in the Son, to have the Son is to have life. So may you not only believe in the true facts of the Gospel, But may you also know that through believing, by faith, you share in his victory and you participate in his life. Let's pray. Father, we hear those words. Uh, This is the victory that overcomes the world, uh, the faith that we have. And we confess that so often in our lives we struggle to know the reality of that as we face the, the battles of life, as we face the pressures day by day that are on us from the world and its expectations, its pressures to conform to the way of the world, as we battle internally with the desires of our own heart and we know the, the sin that is still there, the sin that we battle with, day by day, the sin that so often we give into when we know that you've called us to something higher and better. Father, we pray that you will help us to see in our heads, in our hearts, in our lives uh, the victory that Christ has won for us on the cross and in his resurrection and in his pouring out of the Spirit upon us. 
Help us to, to remember all of the promises that he gives to the overcomer. All that he is that he has freely shared with us and brought us into. Father, may we be a people who believe that Jesus is your son. He is the son of God. That through believing we may have life in his name and through that life we might be empowered and set free to truly love one another and love the world around us. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn which speaks of this victory that he has brought us into. Uh, The Lord is my salvation.